Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. This spring, Betty Reed Soskin hung up her hat and retired as a ranger with the National Park Service. She's 100 years old. America's oldest park ranger, Betty Reed Soskin, retires from her job at the Rosie the Riveter World War II Homefront National Historical Park. Hundreds turning out to thank her. In Betty Reed Soskin played a major role in helping to establish the National Park and Museum in the Bay Area city of Richmond. It honors the women who worked in shipyards during World War II. But Betty also experienced growing up black in America, and with her gentle brand of activism, pushed the park to present an honest view of history, even if it wasn't always complimentary. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. You've probably heard of Betty Reed Soskin, but what you may not know is that she's also an author, an activist, a poet and a singer-songwriter. Hear my wind song Hear the bones cry This is Betty back in 1971, performing a song she wrote called Wind Song. Betty's life has so many chapters. Today on our show, we've got a special treat for you. It's a documentary from our friends, the Kitchen Sisters, celebrating Betty Reed Soskin. It's a kind of mixtape of Betty's stories that they put together as a tribute. Stories that drop in on her life of 100 years. Gathered and preserved by many producers and archivists. Betty's story starts in New Orleans. The year was 1927, and I was a six-year-old. And that was the year that the city fathers in New Orleans chose to bomb the levees against the rising Mississippi to save the Garden District and St. Charles Avenue. And they sacrificed the 7th and 9th wards and the Treme, which was our ancestral home. That was the year that my mother arrived at 6th Street Southern Pacific Station in Oakland with three little girls, everything we had left in a couple of cardboard suitcases, a crucifix, to join George Allen, her father, Papa George, my grandfather, who had settled here in Oakland at the end of the First World War and was at that time working as a waiter at the Oakland Athletic Club, sharing a little shotgun bungalow out in East Oakland at 76th Avenue with my mother's two Pullman Porter brothers and a sister. And there I would begin life as a child of the service workers' generation. 
Our fathers and our uncles were the red caps and the Pullman porters and the waiters and the cooks and the bellhops, the janitors. Our mothers were 50 cents an hour domestic servants, cleaning white people's houses and taking care of white people's children because that's who we were as a nation in those years. My great-grandmother, Leontine Bro, had been born into slavery in 1846 in St. James Parish, Louisiana. She was the result of rape. My great-grandmother lived to be 102, not dying until 1948. My mother was born in 1894 and lived to be 101, dying in 1995, and I was born in 1921, that means that the three of us were all adults at the same time. That I was 27 years old, married, and a mother by the time my slave ancestor died. I knew her as the matriarch of my family. And those three lives had bridged the entire American narrative, all the way from the Dred Scott decision, the Civil War, Emancipation Proclamation, Plessy B. Ferguson, Sacco and Banzetti, Rosenberg's, Lindbergh's flight, and Amelia Earhart's loss, two civil wars, Vietnam, House and American Activities Committee, Kent State and People's Park, and Malcolm X, Dr. King, Fannie Lou Hamer and Emmett Till, assassination of the Kennedys, Moon landing, the Mars probe, E equals MC squared, <laughs> and black holes in Stephen Hawking, the bombing of the Murrow Building in Oklahoma, 20 kids in a Connecticut classroom and their teachers, and nine people in a prayer circle in South Carolina, and 26 people in a small church in Texas, Trayvon Martin and Oscar Grant, Michael Brown and Peter Gray, and Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter and all of that happened within a lifetime of three women who were all adults at the same time. Add to that the fact that on January 20th of 2009, I'm a seated guest on the Capitol Mall. I'm seated there with a picture of my great-grandmother in my breast pocket, witnessing the inauguration of America's first African-American president. In the shadow of the Lincoln Memorial, Lincoln, whose life was contemporary with the life of my great-grandmother, because that's how fast the time goes. My first job, I think, was during the uh, Second World War as a clerk in the basement of the Federal Building on McAllister. It was at a time when San Francisco was subject to having air raid sirens go off, the suspected uh, submarines off the coast or an unidentified plane in the area, because, of course, we were at war. My parents became concerned that I would be caught in San Francisco during an air raid. So I transferred to the Air Force as a federal employee in Oakland. As a transfer, I didn't realize that you could not work in the clerical departments for the Air Force unless you were white. And because I'm racially ambiguous, no one had picked it up. 
So I found myself just a few days later with the young woman whose desk abutted mine being called up by the lieutenant to be warned that I was colored and that she was getting very, very close to me, and she should know that. I watched the conversation from afar, and it was very clear that my young friend, who I'd been sharing lunches with, was upset about something. She came back to her desk, and I said, what was that? Because they had been looking at me while they were talking. She admitted that the lieutenant had warned her that I was colored. I got up and immediately walked to his desk and said, who told you that I was not? And he said, <laughs> he said, don't worry, Betty. I've talked with all the, the people who work with you and your supervisors, and, and they're willing to work with you. <laughs> and I said, but are they willing to work under me? He said, we will see that you get your pay raises, which meant no. And so I went back to my desk, picked up my purse, walked out on the Air Force, and never want to look back. My name is Bob Reed. I am the son of Betty Reed Soskin. I am a professional musician and horse person. I became a child in 1950. My parents, when I was two years old, moved to Walnut Creek, California, which was an unusual decision for them to make. My parents had been trying to purchase property in Berkeley and understood that if you weren't white, you couldn't buy anything above Shattuck Avenue. But my dad had gone for picnics out on the train in the Diablo Valley and thought that's where he wanted to have his family. So my mother and father built a house out in Walnut Creek and took on a lot more, I think, than they knew. We were, as a result, you know, the first black kids in the schools, and, uh, and my parents had to, had to deal with that. That took a lot for my parents to do that. You know, the courage. I, I used to believe that everybody had rocks thrown at their house in the middle of the night. I thought that was just the way it was. Mel was playing professional football. His teammates were all moving out to the suburbs. Mel fell in love with a, a lot that was there, decided this was where he's going to establish a home for his family. We knew that we couldn't buy the property because this was all white. We got Lionel Wilson's wife, who was white, Dorothy Wilson. Lionel, who was a judge of Oakland, whatever it was. She made the purchase. We got a Quaker architect to design our home, built a lovely Redwood house out in Diablo Valley, and then lived with five years of death threats. I could not find my voice while I was a victim in those first five years, but I found it when the opportunity to become a defender of someone else arose. There was a young couple, he was a truck driver and she was a nurse's aide, a young African-American couple who had bought into a low-income community in Pleasant Hill, and the Improvement Association gathered to prevent their moving in. And I read about their plight and decided that I was going to go to their Improvement Association meeting because I had lived through that. And my neighbors by that time had lived through it with me and that we had come to a different place. And I thought, if I can share that, tell them that this goes, this passes, that they will get over it. And, and, and maybe I can keep this young couple from suffering 
them same fate that we had. A young attorney, David Borton, saw a letter that I'd written to the editor, called me and said that he didn't think that I should go to that meeting, that I was going to be hurt. And I said, no, I'm not, because they don't say those ugly things in your presence. They only say them behind your back. I will go. He said, then I will also be there. But I had never met him. He was a member of the Unitarian Church. I drove out to that little elementary school cafeteria, waited for my turn, and they didn't recognize me because I'm racially ambiguous. And I got to hear all the awful things that people say at those meetings without anybody knowing I was among them. And it was at a point where I couldn't stand it any longer when a woman got up and said, if we can't get rid of the undesirable any other way, we can use the health department on the basis of the unhealthy diseases they bring in. At which point I got up and walked to the front of the auditorium, made my speech, and in the middle of it, my mouth went dry and I was terrified. And I ran out of the auditorium. Now it's dark. And I heard thundering footsteps behind me and I thought I was being chased. It was a reporter. He said, I, I need to know your name. I'll call you, but I have to go back in and hear what happens as the result of what you've just done. And then the next hand on my shoulder was David Borton saying, I'm here, I'm David. And that was when I joined the Unitarian denomination forever. <laughs> but that Improvement Association never met again. That was the point where I became self-defined. I think that up to that point, I'd been defined pretty much by the men in my life. I realized that I could, I could do this. My mom was a singer-songwriter when I was a kid. She played guitar and sang, and uh, you know, our family was one of the founding families of the Mount Diablo Unitarian Church. And my mother found a home there playing music for the adults and for, for the kids. And it was the 60s, so everybody was playing songs and singing. And I, at the same time, was going to work at my father's store, Reed's Records, in Berkeley. So I was aware of the different lifestyles on either side of the Caldecott Tunnel. The only white person that ever came into my father's store was carrying the mail. Now, my father had had a job stocking jukeboxes. He realized that there was a market for the music that people who had come from the South, especially black people, race records that were called then, he realized there was a market for these records because there were a lot of requests for them. So he started selling those records out of the trunk of his car. And then my mother started selling them out of the garage, I think, of the duplex we lived in on Sacramento Street. Reed's Records was this funky little store. All these bins, you know, made out of particle board. All kinds of records that you don't see everywhere. Wonderful jazz records and Chuck Berry and Aretha Franklin, Slim Harpo and James Brown. People come in and they'd ask for a record and I'd have to know what it was and go find it. We had listening booths, put the record on and they'd go in the booth and listen. My dad used to make us stand on street corners and give out flyers to uh, gospel concerts that he was promoting. 
I went into a period where I was struggling with being a lonely wife mm -hmm. in the suburbs among many lonely women whose husbands were all in the cities making the mortgage money. I was raising three little boys, a handicapped daughter. I had to find ways to travel with Dory hanging to my skirt because I couldn't leave her, even for moments. I was learning to live with all of that in a hostile community and became fairly suicidal. I had to find deep within me the strength to travel without leaving myself behind. She was lonely because I think she was in an unhappy marriage. She had just had, you know, six years after I was born, my, my, my younger sister was born and she was developmentally disabled. And my mother, I think, felt pretty trapped feeling that she was always going to be taking care of my sister. So that was something she always had to deal with, had to keep in mind. And my older brother was troubled as well. He struggled with alcoholism from a fairly early age, you know, from the time he was, I don't know, 16. So um, she struggled with that as well, and he, he came out as gay when I was about 18. That was a complication. He didn't quite know what to do with that, how to be that at that time. I began to write music uh, for about 10 years. Here I stand in winter. Never wanting to be a singer but needing to be Betty who sings. I would sing in my church. I would sing at, at college campuses with other poets. I find that over time, I documented about 20 years of history, but never published anything. And I wrote this song. The title is Signed My Name to Freedom. And the story is that Susan Sanford young daughter of Don Sanford, who was a member of my church, from her letters home in summer of 64 to work in a freedom school with SNCC, allowed me to imagine the woman in whose home Susan may have shared with other SNCC workers. It's Monday morning, streets are bare. Seems like they don't want me nowhere since I went to the courthouse and signed my name to freedom. Daughters say, mustn't run. Sound of trumpets, the kingdoms come. Mama, go to the courthouse. Got to sign your name to freedom. Fields of fire, cotton flaming neath the summer skies. Shrouds of white, no name naming. You don't know this dream can't die. Churches burned, deacon dead. Still I know it's like daughter said. Ain't no turning back now. I done signed my name to freedom. Freedom, my Lord was down at the courthouse. Day I signed my name. 
I stopped being surprised by my mother long ago. <laughs> when she stopped being, you know, Betty Reed in Walnut Creek and had to leave the house in Walnut Creek and start a new life, she wound up as an administrator at UC Berkeley in this program and marrying the uh, head of the program and living up on Grizzly Peak. Now, that was a big change. When that marriage ended, she went back to running the family business and took over the store and did a pretty good job of it. Understood that people are going to start receiving uh, their music over the internet. And then she went to work for the city of, city of Berkeley as a, one of the staff members of one of the, the council people. And then she became a field representative. After raising four kids to adulthood and outliving two husbands, I came back into Richmond as a field representative for a member of the California State Assembly. I worked for Dion Ariner, and when Dion term limited out, I stayed on as a field representative for her successor, Lonnie Hancock. It was in that year that the park was being formed in my assembly district, and I began to attend meetings of the planning groups. It was very clear to me that the city of Richmond had been selected as the only place in the country suitable for interpreting the home front story because there were more still standing structures to interpret that history than any other place in the country. But all of the, the structures that would have told my story as an African-American had been torn down immediately when the war ended. So if this story was to be inclusive, it had to incorporate stories, not only of Rosie the Riveter, who was a white woman's story, but the women in my family working outside their homes in slavery. There were multiple stories on the home front. This was probably the greatest mobilization of workers since the building of the pyramids of the Great Wall of China. It involved every man, woman, and child in the country. There was not only the story of the 120,000 Japanese and Japanese Americans who were interned, 70,000 of whom were American citizens, the story of women's emancipation in a non-traditional labor for the first time, African-American migration out of the southern states, that great explosion at Port Chicago, the vaporization of two Kaiser ships, the loss of 320 lives, 202 of them being black dock workers. 50 of those men refused to go back and load those ships because nobody could explain to them what had caused the explosion in the first place. 50 of them were tried and found guilty of treason and sentenced to 8 to 15 years because they had refused to obey an order during wartime. That was the only time in history that we ever tried 50 people in a single trial, but we did that. 50 people. There were so many stories, and if that park was going to be inclusive of its total history, there had to be a broader approach. That was when I became involved as a consultant to the National Park Service because fear that that history was going to be distorted was not going to be inclusive. And four years later, after a four-year contract as a consultant, I became a park ranger at the age of 85 because you guys have forgotten all that good stuff. <laughs> That's all in your book. <laughs> 
That book came from the blogs that she had been writing. She was on senior net way back. She was online way before I ever was. And she went to the first Gore internet thing down in Silicon Valley. She was she was way ahead. But there's things in that book that I didn't know. I mean, as she said, she, she was writing that blog to tell us things that we might not know, so that she had a way to leave her story. The White House. I was invited to go back uh, as a Rosie, and I didn't identify as a Rosie. That was a white woman's story. Also, George Bush was in the White House, and I wasn't going to go there. But then the day came when I was invited to participate in the National Tree Lighting Ceremony with the Obamas. Now, that was something that I could do. And I got to go back to Washington and to take my two granddaughters with me. And I did that with my great-grandmother's picture in my breast pocket and a little velvet bag that my great-aunt Emily had received from her husband on their 35th wedding anniversary. In that was a string of pearls that I had received on my wedding day from my first husband, but had been worn by my young friend, 18-year-old white Susan Sanford, Freedom Summer 1964, when she went down with SNCC to teach in a freedom school. And she wore it under her T-shirt all summer. That was in the bag. As I met the president, he cupped his hand over mine and transferred the presidential seal in a coin into my hand. And I dropped it in that purse. A few minutes later, I'm introducing the President of the United States on PBS with an eyesight of the slave-built capital. And here we all are in that moment with my great-grandmother. It was a moment I will never, ever forget. It was so much larger than life. We gather here. I feel you near on this beautiful night your hand in mine this simple sign of love Betty Reed Soskin singing Your Hand in Mine. It's a song she wrote about civil rights struggles back in 1964 and it sat in a shoebox for 50 years until 2018 when the Oakland Symphony and Chorus brought Betty on stage to finally sing it. Your hand in mine is a valid sign of love. We've traveled far from This tribute to Betty Reed Soskin was produced by the Kitchen Sisters, Nikki Silva and Davia Nelson, with Brandy Howell and Nathan Dalton. It includes excerpts from A Lifetime of Being Betty, a Little Village Foundation release produced by Mike Kappas. The Betty Reed Soskin interview, hosted by Shauna Sherman at the African American Center at the San Francisco Maine Public Library. Of Lost Conversations, Betty Reed Soskin's presentations at the Rosie the Riveter World War II Homefront National Historical Park. Fireside Chat with Betty Reed Soskin, produced by Cloud Next 19. No Time to Waste, the urgent mission of Betty Reed Soskin, directed by Carl Biddleman and Stephen Renzel. 
You also heard a song from Jamie Z's new original musical, Sign My Name to Freedom, the unheard songs of Betty Reed Soskin, produced by the San Francisco Bay Area Theater Company. Thanks to Bob Reed, Richard Hilton, Sarah O'Malley, Nora Hilton, and the Rosie the Riveter Trust. And of course, a special thanks and a happy 100th birthday to Betty Reed Soskin. The California Report magazine is a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Susie Racho is our producer-director. And our sound engineer is Brendan Willard. Our team also includes Amy Mayer, Amanda Font, and Izzy Bloom. And I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks so much for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.